But we are going to talk about Christmas today, and we already read the Christmas story, and we all love the Christmas story. We love the nativity scene. We love that classic image of Mary and Joseph traveling with the baby. The Christmas cards always have them on a donkey for some reason. No reason why it couldn't have been, but it's just funny that that's the image we've picked upon. But we need to remember the reason why they were traveling in the first place. Because ordinarily, if a woman, to use the old King James language, is great with child, that is not the time to be traveling anywhere, especially on a donkey. Amen? Amen. So why were they moving? Why were they traveling? Well, we already read it this morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. It tells us that Joseph went up from Galilee, which is in the north of the promised land, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is in the south of the promised land close to Jerusalem, to the town which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem is the city where Jesus was born. Bethlehem is seen a few times in the Bible, never really with much emphasis in the Old Testament. Rachel was buried there, who was Jacob's true love in Genesis 35. Judges 12 tells us that there was a judge named Ibzan. Everybody's favorite judge from the book of Judges, right? Ibzan was from the town of Bethlehem. And unfortunately, Judges 17 and 19 and a few other places have some rather sordid stories happening uh, with people from Bethlehem. But then when you get to the book of Ruth, that is where Bethlehem starts to take the forefront. Ruth and Boaz were married there. That's where Naomi's family had been from before they went to Moab. And that is where Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson named David was born. And you, of course, know David would go on to become the king of Israel. And so Jesus being born in Bethlehem, he had to be born there because they were registering the people to pay taxes. This was not a happy trip for anybody. Imagine if the government were to put out a proclamation and say, okay, we're trying to get our tax money, but we're having trouble figuring out exactly how many people we have. So everybody's got to go back to the town where they were born until we can straighten this out. I'm sure y'all would love that, wouldn't you? Well, if they're doing it at the point of a sword, then you have to. And that's why they went to Bethlehem, because Joseph was from the house and the lineage of David. And there's a great picture there that I'm sure you're familiar with, that Jesus was to be the true son of David with a capital S. He was to be the true king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And that is what Bethlehem signified. But there's another lesson to consider that I want to look at today. The name Bethlehem, the Hebrew there is Bet-lechem. Beth means house. Lechem means bread. House of bread, that's right. Bethlehem, that's what the city means. And so that metaphor, that picture, that image of scripture of bread is the one that we're going to turn our attention to this morning. And that's why we're going to be picking up in John chapter 6, although we will still very much be discussing the Christmas story. I'm going to read in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 24, and we'll, we'll make our way through most of this chapter here. On the next day... The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." We pick up this story right after one of Jesus' most famous stories concerning bread. This was the feeding of the 5,000. 
This is when there were 5,000 families, not individuals, 5,000 families gathered to hear Jesus teach. And they were in a desolate place and they said, we don't have enough food. And Jesus told the disciples, well, what do you have? And they said, well, there's this kid that brought five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus said, that's enough. I can handle it. And Jesus multiplied the bread and the loaves or the bread and the fishes so that everybody got a chance to eat. And that night he sent the disciples away across the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum, which was kind of home for them while Jesus was ministering. And he followed the next night walking on the water. That's where that story comes from. Well, the morning comes, the crowd wakes up, and they see that Jesus is not there. They see that the boat is gone. They know that Jesus didn't get on the boat. So they say, we got to find him, rather than, you know, taking the hint that maybe Jesus wanted a break, which is exactly what was going on in this story. And they sailed after him, looking for Jesus until they arrive at Capernaum. And we know from verse 59 that all of this story is going to take place in the synagogue at Capernaum while Jesus was teaching. So imagine the crowding here. So you show up for little towns, Capernaum, for church in the morning, for synagogue on the Sabbath day. And now thousands of people that had just been fed by Jesus' miraculous multiplication of the loaves start crowding into your little synagogue to hear him speak. And that's the picture that, that we get when we come into this chapter. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because remember, they didn't see him get on the boat. And now there he is. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they knew Jesus was talking about himself here, verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's like, really? You just saw one. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now they ask, wait a minute, how'd you get here so fast? And the answer was Jesus walked across the water and caught up with his disciples while they were uh, on, on the waves. And they found him there, but Jesus doesn't even answer this question. He gets straight to the point. He says, truly, truly, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying, you're not following me because you want to be my disciples. You're following me because you got a free lunch yesterday and you thought it was really cool and you think it might be great to get another free lunch today. It is a well-known fact to every pastor that if you offer food, there will be more people at that service. <laughs> and he says, hey, don't focus on material things. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that gives eternal life. He says, I, I need to take your eyes off of this, this bread, this actual bread that's going to nourish your body, which is what they wanted. And to be fair, a lot of these people were probably poor and couldn't pay for their food. He's like, but listen, you got your eyes on the wrong thing. You need to be looking to the nourishment of your soul, the bread that will not perish. And he said that they missed the signs. Do you see that in verse 26? Not because you saw signs. 
They weren't coming because he must be the Messiah, because only the Messiah could do this. They say, well, he's giving away free bread. But he's saying, you missed the fact that that bread that I provided was to be a sign that according to verse 27, God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. The miracle of the bread was to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. But they missed that. He said, you need to start focusing on spiritual things. And they say, okay, well, what do we got to do to do that? It's a good question to ask a Bible teacher. What is it that God wants us to do? And he says, to believe on him whom he has sent. That is, if you want to please God, you've got to put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as the one that God has sent. Well, verse 30, they say, okay, what sign will you perform? And that sounds really reasonable, right? Because they know that he's saying, if you want to please God, you've got to believe in me. They say, okay, prove it, big guy. What are you going to do that proves you're the son of God? Never mind the fact that the day before, they had been fed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. But remember, Jesus is telling them they missed the point. They couldn't see that there was a spiritual truth behind that. They only thought of it as lunch. So in verse 31, they start to hint at him again that they want to see the bread trick again. I mean, uh, what sign are you going to give? I mean, I don't know. Moses gave the people bread. So, you know, maybe you could do that bread thing again. That was pretty cool. They're totally missing the point. And so what Jesus says is, no, Moses didn't give you anything. God gave you the manna. Now, I hope you all know the story of the manna. Exodus 16, 31, this is when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They didn't have any food. They had to flee from Egypt. And remember, they ate unleavened bread because they didn't have time to make bread or provision themselves for the journey. So they have no food. So it says in Exodus 16, 31, that when they looked out the, their tents in the morning, with the dew had come bread on the ground. It was called manna. And it says, Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That was how God provided for their food. And the manna proved, among other things, that Jesus was a prophet. But Jesus is telling them, your attention should not be on the bread itself, but upon what that symbolizes, that God has sent me. He's saying God is doing something new. He says, the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven. Just like the manna had come down from heaven, Jesus is saying, I came down from heaven and I'm going to give life to your soul. God was doing something new. And as we move on, can I just say that we face the same problems today and that we are much more concerned with filling our stomachs than we are with saving our own souls? Philippians 3.19, Paul talks about people whose God is their belly. That is, the only thing they care about is satisfying their flesh, satisfying the body in however way they choose to do that. We're much more concerned with the carnal material things that we can see and taste and touch. But what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm trying to take you all beyond that. I'm not trying to solve these problems. I'm trying to solve the problem that caused these problems. I'm trying to get past the body and go straight to the heart. I'm come to give bread that will give life to the world. And so in verse 34, they said, Sir, give us this bread always. Once again, missing it. So Jesus gets clearer in verse 35. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it says, I've come to bring spiritual bread that will give you eternal life. And they say, yeah, more bread. Give us more bread. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm the bread of life. This is like in John 4 when Jesus told the woman at the well, said, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked for living water and I would have given it to you. She goes, well, give me some living water because I'm tired of coming out to the well every day. He's like, okay, you're kind of missing the point. It's a major theme of the book of John is that people never quite understood what Jesus was getting at. And so he gives us one of his classic I am statements when he says, I am the bread of life. He says, let's just cut through the, the imagery and the figurative language here. I am the bread. I am better than manna. I am better than what was given to the 5,000. That if you put your faith in me, you will be eternally satisfied in your soul as opposed to bread, which can only satisfy your body for a little while. And he says, and even though you've seen me, you do not yet believe. He says, you guys have seen plenty at this point to know who I am. I think that's true of a lot of us in this room. You're constantly asking for another piece of evidence, but you receive the piece that you asked for last time and it's not enough for you. Jesus is saying, come on, guys. How much more do I have to show you? And so he starts to explain what this means, right? It sounds very spiritual and cool to say, the bread of life that will satisfy your soul. Okay, well, what is that? What does that mean? Jesus, as he most often does, explains himself. He tells us what it means. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He starts by identifying with the will of his father. This is significant, and we're going to touch on it more in a minute. He says, I'm, I'm doing what the father has called me to do. And what is the will of that father? He says in verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So what Jesus is about to say applies to everyone. All right? The ones that the Father has given to me, that applies to everybody here. He explains that I have come down from heaven just like the manna did. And what God wants him to do is hold on to those that he gives him and to raise them up on the last day. Do you see that? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's talking about resurrection here. I will raise him up. This isn't just like, I'll make you, you know, feel better about your bad situation. No, he's talking literal, raise him up on the last day, and he will have everlasting life, eternal life, living forever. That's true bread. Plain old bread keeps you alive. And it helps your body for a little while until eventually you reach a point where not even bread can help you. But Jesus said, the bread that is me, what I'm about to provide for you, will give you life from the death and keep you alive forever and ever. Jesus would say in John eleven twenty five to Martha when her brother had died, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? Jesus always brought people to the point of decision. And that's the thing that we have to ask. Because what does he say? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes shall have eternal life. 
He's saying, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, but the bread isn't going to do you any good unless you believe. Unless you believe. Now you can see why Jesus is trying to take their attention off of their stomachs. All the Father gives me to, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay, to come to you. And then what will we receive? You will receive everlasting life. After your death, I will raise you from the dead and you'll never die again. Great, what do I got to do? I've got to believe. This is pretty significant stuff. Now you can see where it's like, guys, stop thinking about bread. It's not about bread. I'm talking about life and death here. I'm talking about heaven and hell here. I'm offering reversal of the curse. And people very often will come to the gospel that we preach and they'll say things like, they just don't understand how bad things really are. You should be worried about poverty. You should be worried about sickness and depression and war. First of all, we are concerned about those things. The church does some of the most thankless work in the entire world in answering those problems. But we recognize that every single one of those things pales before the shadow of death that is over everything, isn't it? Jesus is like, I'm going to go past all that and solve death. That's pretty great, isn't it? He says, so stop focusing on this other stuff. There's something more important. You can feed a million people, but they're still going to die. You can heal a bunch of people. That's great, too. They're still going to die. Give them the nicest houses. Put an end to all war. People are still going to die. And that's why Jesus comes in and says, my priority is the ultimate priority. The bread that came down from heaven in the wilderness, that was to keep my people alive for a short time. Me, the bread of life that came down to Bethlehem, the house of bread, is to bring life to the whole world after death and forever. But verse 41 the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they grumbled. You've heard grumbling in sermons before when somebody says something that somebody disagrees with. No, I don't know about that one. Did he just say he was the bread? Does he say he's the one that's going to give us everlasting? Did he just say that God sent him to the earth? Because in verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he who is from God. He has seen the father. It's like they, they heard nothing. I'm the bread of life. I've come from the Father to give to everybody who believes eternal life and resurrection. And they say, wait a second. That's pretty great, but I know your mama. <laughs> I know your dad. And not only did they know who they were. This is Galilee. It was a small area. They would have known about this. They were offended because remember the scandal of the virgin birth. Now we know that Mary was in fact overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and that's where Jesus came from. But do you think that the neighbors believed that? Do you think that the fact that they all of a sudden decided to get married well before their engagement was over went unnoticed by all the people? They would have been talking. They would have known about this. In fact, in Matthew 1.19, it tells us that Joseph thought it might be best just to divorce Mary quietly and just to kind of put aside the whole thing because she would have been guilty of adultery if they were still engaged and would have been required to be stoned for that. But he said, you know what? 
if, you know what, I know this kid isn't mine, so if we're not married, at least it'll go better for her. And of course, the angel came, and that's a whole other story, but the courage of Joseph, who's willing to bear that shame for the rest of his life. Then in John 8, 31, when Jesus is telling the people that you're not acting like true children of Abraham, they say something to the effect of, well, at least we know who our father is. We're not born of sexual immorality, Jesus, son of Joseph. They were offended. They knew Joseph. They knew Jesus' father. They knew Jesus' mother. Maybe Joseph's father, uh, Jesus' father, Joseph, had built a chair or a table in their house. They thought he was self-aggrandizing. How would you feel if one of the young people from our church grew up and started saying, the father has sent me from heaven? It's like, I babysat you in childcare when you were a kid. You're going to come here and tell me? You can see why they were grumbling. But Jesus tells him not to do that. He tries to get him back on track, doubling down on saying that he was from God the Father. Anybody who says that Jesus never claimed to come from God or to be God or to be one with the Father clearly does not read this passage, but also doesn't recognize the reaction of the people. You can't say things like that, man. I don't care if you multiply 5,000 loaves. Elijah never said he was the Son of God. And Jesus acknowledges it. He goes, I get it. Not everybody's going to come to me. Verse 44, he says, it has to be the Father drawing him. And they will all be taught by God. Who's that? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Can you hear the, the insult beneath that? If you're, a, if you're a prideful Hebrew at this point, well, you're saying that we all don't know God's voice? That's exactly what he's saying. Only those who truly know God. And he's saying, if you really knew God, you would recognize that I was special. You would recognize who I was. Man, if Jesus was not the son of God, he had a screw loose. So, so much for the idea that, well, you know what? I like what Jesus had to say, but I don't think he was God. Normal, well-adjusted people don't say things like that. We say, all right, I don't think I want to hear from this guy anymore. But if he was right, then man, everything he said, it just means that much more. He quotes from Isaiah 54, 13 in verse 45, which is a passage of great redemption, that God's going to restore the people and you're going to come out of exile and I'm going to restore your nation. And Jesus effectively says, all of the promises of the Old Testament are only going to be fulfilled through me because you have to learn from the Father, but I'm the word of the Father. God is speaking through me. Notice how strong this claim is. He says there in verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, Except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Well, who's he? He's from God. It's him. And he claims that he has seen the Father. Do you remember what God told Moses in the book of Exodus? Lord, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, no man can see my face and live. So for Jesus to say, I've seen the Father, is for him to declare equality with the Father. He cannot be merely human. He's saying in this passage, to hear my voice is to hear God's voice. That's where his authority to give life comes from. How can Jesus claim to be the bread from heaven that can give eternal life to everybody who comes to him? He says, because God the Father has given me this authority. You know God the Father? Yeah, I've seen him. You've seen him. Moses didn't even see him. Well, I'm greater than Moses. Jesus would say in the next chapter, or the previous chapter, John 5, 25 and 26, he said, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who's the Son of God? It's him. He's saying the day is coming when all the dead people are going to hear me call them back to life. 
They say, how do you plan on doing that? He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's saying, what is true of me is true of God. That's incredible. The origin of Jesus Christ is the deal breaker for the truth of his claims because Jesus' claims are supernatural. He says, one day I'm going to call out and raise the dead and give them everlasting life. Like bread from heaven. This is why Christmas matters. Because where he came from means everything. And we know who he was. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Now, you've got to work with me on this, but this is incredibly important. When we say eternally begotten of the Father, when we beget children, they have a beginning. But for Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, he would have to be less than God unless he was God himself. Work with me here. You have a child. The child is finite. Why? Because you are finite. You had a beginning, so your child has a beginning. You have an end, so you're going to have an end. So for Jesus to be described as the Son of God, he has whatever God has, which includes eternity. So there never was a time where Jesus was not. He never began. But the relationship that he has between him and God is best described as that between a father and a son. Eternally begotten, sharing in all his divine attributes. That's the Trinity. And they are truly one. But the distinct part for the Son to play within the triune council of God is to secure salvation. So the Son of God became a man. He was born in Bethlehem. Now lots of people are born, but what was unique about how Jesus was born? His mother was a virgin. Okay, well, what else is special about it? How about when he was born, even though he was born in the most obscure place where nobody was paying any attention, heaven opened up and angels started to sing. The word was made flesh. The eternally begotten Son of God became a man. It matters immensely where Jesus is from. If Christmas is true, then eternal life is available. How about that? If Christmas is true, eternal life is available. Now you might say, okay, how do we get that? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. First, he's going to tell us how we don't get it. Verse 47. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. You see the point he's making here? You need something better than manna. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. More on that in a second. Here he sounds the message that he was sent to proclaim. Belief in him will bring about eternal life. Believing that he is God, very God, light from light, the Son made flesh to die for us. If you believe that and place your faith in him, eternal life is yours. And he says, I know not everybody is going to come, but those who hear the message and respond are those who are hearing the voice of God. He wants to return to this image of bread here. He says, yeah, you want manna. Everybody who ate manna died. He says, but if you eat of this bread, so to speak, you'll never die. Psalm 78, 25 called manna the bread of the angels. 
And that's all these people came from, looking for bread. Maybe that's why you come to church. You're looking for something to help you through life. That's great. God will give you that. But the first thing that you need repaired is that God is going to give you life after life. Life after death. Resurrection. We need what Jesus is offering because nothing else will satisfy us. You eat bread, you're going to want more bread. If you eat, you're going to get hungry again. Sometimes it's shocking how fast we get hungry again after we've eaten something. But let's think about this spiritually. People don't want to come to Jesus because they say, well, I, I like my sin too much. I like carnality, whatever stripe it might be. There's things that I want to try first. Yeah, but do they make you happy? Of course they don't. Intellectualism, that's another kind of bread that people try. I'm just trying to get as smart as I can, and then that will, that will satisfy my soul. No, it won't. I've met a lot of really smart people, and that is not what makes them happy or sad. Accomplishments. Get one more degree. Get one more promotion. One more raise. One more success. You can chase that your entire life. This is why we wonder why men that are far too old to be playing those games are still out there trying to make another million or get another election or get another success because they haven't had enough yet. Even spirituality. People say, well, I'm going to try to find something that makes me feel spiritual and feel religious and feel good about myself. That's not going to help you when you die. Oh, that's morbid thinking. No, that's practical thinking. Practical thinking. Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Every day you sin, you are racking up debt that is going to have to be paid later in hell. And because sin is an eternal crime, it is an eternal punishment. Small comfort will be your bread then. Well, at least we had good times. Won't mean a thing then. But what Jesus says is, I've got a gift for you. Living bread. Bread that's going to give life forever. The bread of his flesh, he says. And you might say, well, I don't like it when Christians get all exclusive. Fine. We're offering salvation Real salvation, eternal life, not like some weird, wispy metaphor of what that might look like. Actual, literal, eternal life. And you have to admit, you have no alternative to that. So you better take these claims of Jesus pretty seriously. But they get hung up on what he said again. He said, the bread I will give is my flesh. So verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, admittedly, that's a rather strange thing to say, isn't it? So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, he doesn't go, now, nah, just hold on, guys. Let me explain what I mean by that. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is when the moms in the room started to get a little uncomfortable and regretting they had invited friends to synagogue that day. This guy's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. I love that Jesus doubled down there. 
And I'm going to explain what he meant. But what Jesus was doing was saying, listen, you're either going to get this or you don't. You're either going to hear the voice of the Father. And as he said earlier, you've been given enough information to make an informed, intelligent decision. He doesn't go out of his way to try to secure converts. He just tells it like it is. And he, I, it's, I, I like to think that when he said, eat my flesh, and everybody goes, oh, that's, but why, how can he say it? It's like, young man, sit down. That's when he goes, and drink my blood. <laughs> the disciples are like, oh, Jesus. Why did you do it like that, Jesus? Marking it as the key to abiding in him. You want to abide in Christ? Drink his blood. Eat his flesh. Which is key. Because he says, I am from the living Father. And he's given me life. Remember, the eternal generation of the Son. The Son is one with the Father, yet he has his origin within the Father. Eternal sonship. You cannot miss the Trinity piece of this passage. So he's saying, that's why I can give this to you. I can give you life. But why focus on flesh and blood? Why does he got to say it like that? Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, it marks the incarnation. Saying, I am God made flesh. John 1.14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's trying to let them know his origin, remember. Because I came from heaven and now I'm here in the flesh. What I have come to do in the flesh is what matters the most. Not the example he's going to set, not the morals he's going to teach, but our second piece, it looked forward to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. How did Jesus intend to secure the free gift of salvation for a bunch of guilty sinners? Many of you have rather strong political opinions about the fact that certain prison reform laws are being passed and guilty people are having their sentences reduced. I'm not speaking about that issue. I'm saying you have that sense within you that says, hold on a minute, they're guilty. They broke the law. Exactly. So did you. You broke God's law. You say, you can't just give people salvation. You can't just give them forgiveness. You're right. So what was God going to do about this? Well, in Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling them back to what he had said before. He's saying, this bread that has been broken represents my body. And this cup of wine that has been poured out represents my blood. And that is exactly what happened to Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. He was betrayed by his best friend. He was convicted in an unfair trial. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. His body was ripped apart. His blood was shed. Why? It was a substitute for you and for me. That is what you deserved. By becoming a man, Jesus, taking on flesh, could be the perfect sacrifice offered willingly to pay for our debt. That's why the bread I was always unleavened, because leaven is a representation of sin. But just as the angel of death passed over the children of Israel in Egypt, the angel of death will pass us over if we are in Christ Jesus. 
And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that when I said I could give you life, I was right. Because look, I was dead and now I'm alive. And that's the testimony of the church. That's why he can make an offer of eternal life for all who feed on his flesh. The point being, for everybody who participates in what I did on that cross, who believe that what I did on the cross was enough, who receive the forgiveness, who bow the knee to God and turn from their wicked ways and say, Lord, I'm trusting in Jesus to save me. That is the equivalent of eating the bread of heaven that will last forever. That's why we celebrate Christmas when Jesus was born. Manna fell in Moses' day, bread from heaven. It was wonderful. But now the bread of life has come down from heaven to Bethlehem, the house of bread that is going to give life everlasting to the entire world. He demonstrated through signs and wonders in his life that he was from God the Father. And he paid the price that we needed so that we who partake of that bread can live forever. And as he said over and over, the way to receive that bread is not through communion. It's not through some ritual. All those, those things remind us of that. But it's through faith, by belief, by listening to the voice of God, bowing the knee to Christ, active repentance. That's why Jesus came. He was the bread from heaven, the bread that would be broken for all mankind. That's why I love so much how the Lord just drops these layers into the Bible. That Jesus was born at Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life came down. Just like bread of life came down in Moses' day. But this is way bigger and way better. And those of us who have tasted of that bread rejoice this day. Because we remember, yeah, heaven awaits us. Everlasting life awaits us. That's why we sing about hope and joy and peace and love at Christmas time, because we have a reason for those things. That's why folks get cynical when you try to take Jesus out of Christmas. Well, we're just going to talk about hope for no reason and joy for no reason. Look at the world. It's broken. Well, if you take out the one who fixed it, then yeah, of course, it doesn't make much sense. But when you remember the fact that Jesus came to correct all those things, and now that there is hope and there is joy and there is peace and there is love and we can have faith, then this is a wonderful celebration. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, if you've not yet received the bread of life, Christmas is the perfect day to do it. Nobody had any room for Jesus when he came. But is he going to find room in your house? I'm offering you eternal life as Jesus Christ did. God loved you that much to send you bread from heaven, not to satisfy your stomach, but to save your soul.